all. Um, in a, just a moment, we're going to dive into this passage from uh, John chapter 2. But before we do, I just want to share a, a few things with you. First, uh, I, was, I wasn't meant to be preaching this morning. Um, we had, um, we frankly got too many people called Richard in the church, and I thought uh, it was going to be Richard one last week and Richard two this week. But some messages, that's worse, Peter. What are you doing? Oh, sorry. No. Uh, some WhatsApp messages went awry, and uh, so um, as it turns out, um, I, I was back from holiday on on Friday and was just praying about this before we went away. And it was actually at the family fun nights when our, our youth and schools worker Tim was teaching uh, the story of water being turned into wine and you know when something just hits you and you think it's probably always been in the bible but I've never really seen it there before and something really hit me and I just thought I just carried that for a couple of days and was just praying Lord is is that the right thing to bring so this has been growing since the family fun night so I'm going to share that with you in in just a second Um, but the other I I want to trust you with with something because it's it's something that I'm still processing if I'm honest uh, something that I'm not entirely sure how to describe. I don't know if there are words for it, and I'm almost sort of reluctant um, to put too many words. You've already wondered what is coming now, aren't you? But to put too many words to this. But uh, yes, like I say, we got back from holiday on, on Friday, and I wanted to pop in yesterday to uh, grab my laptop. And I came in through the back of the church lounge uh, entrance, and I could hear music in the church. And I thought to myself, I wasn't expecting anyone to be here on a Saturday. Perhaps the musicians are super keen and they've kind of practiced early. Um, but this intense music, this really loud music. So I, if I'm honest, I presumed it was Tim. He likes music loud. And I thought, oh, perhaps Tim, Tim's around. Um, but as I started to walk through the church, I was aware this, this was a unique sound, something I'd not heard before. So I came into my office here, which is just through that door, and grabbed the laptop. And by this time, the singing was so loud, I could feel it in my chest. And I thought, well, we've obviously rented out the building uh, to some really good singers. It'd be great to keep them. You guys are great. But this, this was immense. This was, this was intense. And my, my door was, was, was open just slightly. And it was a really unusual um, overlapping and foreign voices, foreign languages. And so, because the door was open, and it was clear it wasn't a concert of any kind, I peered through the door, and this side of the church was empty. I thought, wow, this is a weird group of singers. They must all be huddled somewhere. And so I stuck my head around the door, and there was nobody here. Even as I'm telling you now, I'm... So I came in to the church, and I'm literally going, hello, Tim, <laughs> Any, nobody here. So my next thought is, perhaps there's something going on outside. So I go to the porch and open the porch. It would have been a weird weather day to have run an open-air concert. There is nobody around. Go back to my office, open the window, look in the lane. There's no, nothing going on. And all I can tell you was that as well, I, I sat here for a while and just wept because the sense of God's presence was almost tangible. And it was a reminder to me that worship doesn't start when we gather on a Sunday, but that we're actually joining in the song of all eternity. 
I wish I could tell you more about it. But it just felt like this place was packed with angels. As a leadership team, we've been praying into a, a, a message that's been coming to us via various channels that the Lord is wanting to lead us into a time of refreshing. There's a part in the book of Acts where they're promised, aren't they, if you repent, then seasons of refreshing, times, multiple times of refreshing will, will come from the Lord. And for me, that was just a huge affirmation of what God is, is wanting to do, to refresh us in our faith, you know, the seasons where you just fall in love with Jesus again, where things which were difficult become easy, and you're just renewed in that sense of vision and strength. And so I'd love us just to pause to pray together this morning. I was, one of the things I've been saying to, to Amy about this is I, I, I don't know what it meant, that whole experience, and she keeps telling me perhaps it doesn't have to mean anything, and I don't want to add to it, I don't want to make it mean anything, but it would just seem really odd not to tell you. Uh, not to share that with you, and I've been encouraged by a few people to, to share that today. And so can we just pray together for a moment, and wherever you are around the room or wherever you are at home, whether you're part of this uh, church family on a regular basis, whether you're visiting today, will you pray with us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for glimpses of your glory. We thank you for glimmers of the sheer scale of your power, your presence, and the grace that allows us to enter. Lord, we thank you for so many people down the ages that have You've given words to that inspire us and instruct us. And yet, God, just one glimpse of you leaves us completely awestruck. And so, Lord, today we want to echo that prayer of old, we would see Jesus. So open our eyes today to the reality of the spiritual presence that surrounds and upholds us. Inspire us afresh. And we want to pray, Father, according to your promise, that you would refresh us. That we might enter into a season of renewal. So Holy Spirit, we pray today, would you have your way among us? As you come to minister to us today, in our lives and in our life together, would you have your way? As has already been prayed a number of times already this morning, I want to echo that prayer. That for those here who are hurting, in whatever capacity, God, Holy Spirit, would you minister the goodness of God, the provision of God, the resources of God, would you heal those, Lord, who need to know your healing today? Would you lift those, God, who need to know your lifting today? Would you release those, God, who need to be released today? Would you speak today, God, to those who need to hear you? Would you renew each and every one of us? 
And help us, Lord, we, we pray to return to that first love. And as Daniel has prayed, as we turn to your word today, Lord, we're so hungry to hear from you. We do not need to see more of me. We need to see more of you. So be glorified, I pray, Father, in this place. and Be lifted up that you might draw our hearts and draw people to yourself. And we pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Could we start by just making an agreement? Oh, hang on, I'll go this way. I'll be quicker than, yeah, there you go. So could we start today by making an agreement together? Is that okay? It's a very simple agreement. If you ever get invited to a Jewish wedding, go. <laughs> These things are absolutely huge. Uh, so when we tend to think of weddings today, I mean, there's certain things that will spring to, to, to our minds, the dress, the day, the dance, the dinner, the speeches, the photos. We, we think of all this paraphernalia that comes around it. Uh, in Jewish thinking, a, a wedding is a very different kind of scenario. When they think about weddings, they think about the first step in a new stage of life together. So it's not so much about the day, it's about the season of life that this couple are in. And the whole community, the whole family, want to gather together. Now, to allow this to happen, the celebration does not take place on one day. It takes place over a week. And so the ceremony itself will happen uh, on an evening. Uh, if it's a young unmarried young woman who's never been married before, it's always on a Wednesday, uh, and uh, it takes place in the evening, and then there's this canopy that is carried over this couple as they're led to their new home, uh, and then for the course of a week, they don't go away on, on honeymoon like we do, they have open house for a week. <laughs> they wear crowns, they keep their wedding clothes on, they're dressed as a king and a queen because their word is law for that whole week. Uh, and the party, the celebration just keeps going. Friends come, family come, the whole community comes. Uh, and the other thing you need to know about this story is that in Jewish thinking, hospitality is so deep, is so rich. That if people came to your house and you couldn't provide for them, it was like a horror story. It would be horrific. You know, Jesus tells that story about prayer, that if someone came to your home at midnight and asked you for bread, of course you'd get up, answer the door and give them bread. We read that story and go, no, I wouldn't. I'd pretend I didn't hear the door go at all. In Jewish thinking, that just wouldn't happen. And so what happens in this story is horrific. You couldn't read this story as a Jewish person without thinking how awful this would be for the family to have run out of wine. The shame that would rest on this family would rest for generations. If you were a younger sibling in the family, your prospects of getting married, having come from the family that couldn't even host a good wedding, are almost zero, almost zilch. So this is a horrific moment. They're there at this party, it's been going on for days, the wine's been flowing, the, the dancing, the sharing, people coming and going into this poor couple's new house. And suddenly, somebody realizes what others have been noticing for a while. We've been hitting the wine a little bit hard. Perhaps it's to do with the fact that Jesus has just arrived, and when Jesus arrives, he tends to bring an entourage with him. And at this point in John's Gospel, there are at least five 
uh, disciples that have started to follow Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples arrive. That's another six people. Uh, and they've, they've run out of wine. Somehow, Mary seems to have some relationship uh, with the family. That's probably why they're there uh, in the first place. Because if you're a relative of a relative of a relative who happened one day to meet this person, you're probably invited to this wedding to celebrate together. And around this celebration, suddenly there's this whisper, this, this rumor, this secret fear. We're not going to be able to keep going. The ancient rabbis had a saying, or two sayings. One was, with, where there's no wine, there's no joy. I'm not sure how helpful uh, that one was. But the other saying was that on the day of judgment, we won't just be judged for the bad things that we did, but for all the good gifts of God that we didn't enjoy. It seems like this party has taken that to the ultimate extreme. But somebody has realized we're running out. We're running low. And then finally... It's all gone. A secret fear. I wonder if you've had to live with a secret. A secret fear. And everyone else is smiling. Everyone else is dancing. But you know you haven't got it. You know something is run out. Something is lacking. Do you know how exhausting it is to smile when you do not feel like smiling? And these servants are smiling, but they know time has been called on this party. And sooner or later, someone's going to know, someone's going to realize. So Mary then comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. I wonder... What do you talk to Jesus about? Because the first thing that strikes me as I read this story is, if I was at a party and we ran out of alcohol, probably the last thing I would think to do in that moment is to pray. (laughs) Probably the last person I'd think to involve in this situation is God. Surely he's involved in, we're about to have a big asteroid shower this evening, aren't we? Surely he runs that kind of side of the universe. And it's possible, isn't it, to have a view of God where he's interested in the spiritual side of my life. But the rest of it, he just expects me to run myself. It's possible to have a vision of God that, yes, I think he would probably provide bread for an orphanage, but wine for a wedding. And Mary turns to Jesus. I've often wondered why. Is there something that she'd seen in Jesus as a boy or as a young man or now in his 30s? She knew he could do something. She didn't know what, but she turns to Jesus. Remember that um, hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything. Bread for the orphans and wine for the wedding. Everything to God in prayer. See, Jesus teaches us to pray, doesn't he, to our Father in heaven. And he teaches us to ask him for our daily bread. We'd love God to provide us with a month's worth of food. 
But Jesus says, no, this is how your relationship is going to go whenever there's a need. Yes, of course, within that prayer, we pray for the forgiveness of sins and the coming of the kingdom. And we recognize that all the glory and all the honor and all the power is God's forever and ever. Amen, of course. But part of that is recognizing that God wants to give us bread daily. Everything. When I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, I called it The Anatomy of a Miracle, which is a terrible title. I shouldn't have called it that. But how many things in our lives do we rob God of the opportunity to provide for us because we're not asking him? We're not looking to him. James puts it really clearly. You have not because you ask not. What do you talk to God about? What things are you not talking to God about? Behind the smile, that secret fear. Because here's what happens in, in this moment, and we'll come to it in just a moment, but when Jesus encounters a secret fear, there's a secret power that is released. No one's seen this yet, but soon a whole village is going to see it. I wonder what testimonies we are robbing our village of by keeping things secret, by not bringing them to Jesus. I love this um, interaction between Jesus and Mary. If, if I'm honest, I'm still trying to get my head around it a little bit. But Jesus, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've, they've run out of wine. It's really difficult to translate this next verse. I love the, the version that, that Catherine read for us, which kind of gets us a bit closer. It's problematic for a number of reasons. One is because, first of all, he calls Mary woman. Now, you'd expect him to call, him, uh, call her mother in, in a Jewish context. And we'll come to why in, in just a second. But the first thing to know is it, that that title denotes respect, not disrespect. It's actually a title that a Roman emperor once addressed the, 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 the Queen of Egypt with. It's a title of honor and, and respect, but why not, mother? And then this phrase in, in the NIV, I think it says, why do you involve me? And that's what we fear sometimes, isn't it? Does God really want to be involved in my party, in my life? And if we're going to be really honest this morning, those times when we keep asking and nothing seems to happen makes us feel like he doesn't want to be involved. As Daniel was saying earlier, perhaps he's able but not willing, or willing and not able, but nothing's happening. Why do you involve me? In, in the Greek, it, this is why it's so difficult to translate this, this phrase, what has that got to do with you or me? And I've come to understand it, it's a phrase that people would say in a moment of, why do you need to worry about this, and, and why do I need to, to worry about this? One of the things we need to understand when we bring God our, our concerns, our worries, is that he is concerned about us, but he's not anxious. Sometimes we interpret God's lack of activity uh, as a lack of care. It's never that. God is not an anxious presence in our parties. Why are you worried about this? Why should I be worried about this? Then he says, my time has not yet come. Now, if you know John's Gospel well, in fact, all the Gospels, but especially John's Gospels, there is this sense of a, a countdown 
On a number of occasions, Jesus will use this phrase, my time or my hour has not come or not been fulfilled. Jesus knows that he's come into the world for a specific hour, that the purpose of his life is to give that life away on the cross. And finally, he says, doesn't he, right uh, towards the end of his life, my time has now come, and it's just before he's arrested and, and taken to the cross. He says to his mother in this moment, why are you worried about this? Don't involve me yet. My time has not yet come. John's going to tell us, and it's been obvious if you've been reading from the start of the gospel, that this is the first time Jesus is going to display his power. And so as soon as he has done that, people are going to start to recognize who he is. Some people are going to follow him, some people are going to reject him, but it puts him on a path towards the cross. And he says that the time for that has not yet come. Then Mary turns to the servants and says, listen, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Suddenly it is Jesus' time to reveal his glory. Mothers, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. I wonder if this is why Jesus uses the term woman. Because if this is going to be the start of my ministry, then things are going to change. I'm going to leave and be away for long periods of time. You'll be with me for parts of it. But Mary already knew that there was a sword that would be driven through her own soul because of Jesus' calling and ministry. So things are going to change. From the cross, Jesus is going to transfer the care of his mother from himself to the person who wrote this gospel, to John. If we're starting this, then things are changing. Things are moving on. My time has not yet come. I want to show you a, a picture of something, if I can. I don't know how many of you, I, many of you here play cards. You can admit it here in Bethel if you need to. Yeah, have a quick look at this playing card for me. Simple question right off the bat. How many eights can you see on that card? Shouldn't be too difficult. Two. Two? Three? Somebody's seen three. I, if you count the number of diamonds, this is a fun game to play with people, there are two extra diamonds, but that's not the question. You can see two eights, one in the top and one in the bottom, but there is a third eight hidden in this. If you've ever looked at a pack of cards and thought, those diamonds aren't quite sharp, proper diamonds, you might now be starting to see that there is a hidden eight in the middle of that card. Now, that's the thing you're going to be telling people tomorrow, isn't it? That's the thing you're going to take away. Can you see it? Can you see the eight? Some of you can, some of you can. What's odd is, now that you've seen it, if you have seen it, you won't be able to unsee it. So next time you're playing poker, if that's what you do, you'll be looking at your eight of diamonds constantly. One of the things I love about this story is the vision of Jesus where others just see water, Jesus sees wine. On the way into the home, there are these six huge jars full of water, probably uh, bought in or created especially for this celebration. They're used for a number of reasons. One is for foot washing. So people who are traveling with sandals on in the hot and dusty kind of country get messy feet and need to wash their feet. So there's huge six stone water jars to be able to wash these people's feet. When I say huge, the word in Greek that describes them is the word for bath. 
that there is a bath full of water in every one of these jars. You would hold something like, I think it's 20 to 30 gallons, a huge amount of water. The other thing that it was used for was ceremonial washing. And so the Jews had this law that you have to wash your hands, so they would dip their hands in the water, take them out so that the water ran down to their wrist, then put their hands the other way around, so the water ran back down, and then they would clean each palm with their fist. Now you had to do this between every course of your meal, otherwise the meal was, was unclean, and if you were unclean, that had all kinds of consequences about when you could go to temple, and when you could offer sacrifice, and all kinds of things like that. Other people weren't meant to associate with you while you were unclean, and you had to go and pay the price for that. So this water was really important for the Jews. Interestingly, in a Jewish mindset, seven is the perfect number. So if it is a symbol, the fact that there's six should highlight something is wrong, something's incomplete here. But this water is important. So do whatever he tells you to. Jesus says to the servant that comes over, are those um, jars for washing? Can we fill those with water? Now every village in, in the area has got its own well, so that wasn't too hard. Yes, we can, we can fill them with water. Great. Now could you take some to who we would call the head waiter, probably some family member who's taken on responsibility, and have him try some? I know she said, do whatever, but shouldn't there be something in between... We were talking at the family um, fun nights about this and how Jesus doesn't even touch the jars. He has nothing to do with it. Fill them with water and get them to taste some. So he goes over and the guy comes out with this great phrase. Most people serve the worst wine after people have been drinking for days and wouldn't notice, wouldn't care. You've saved the best wine till now. So it's not just wine, it's good wine, it's great wine. If I was a scientist, I could try and describe to you this morning, I'm not going to try, but I, I, th- I think I'm on safe ground in saying that the chemical formula for water and the chemical formula for wine are very different. Looking at some scientists in the room, I, I feel like that's a safe thing to say. So somehow, Jesus has caused the creation of chemicals within this water. John tells us that whenever Jesus does a miracle, it's a sign. It's pointing to a greater reality. I can't cause chemicals to appear where they weren't before, but Jesus is the Lord of matter, Lord of space, not a problem. As far as I understand it, for wine to become great wine, you've got to give it time to ferment and mature and Not a problem. Jesus is the Lord of time. He's able to do that. So where we see water, something bland, something tasteless, essential, but certainly not for a wedding feast, Jesus sees wine. And this Jesus looks at your life, and he looks at mine. What if the thing that you need right now, you've already got? You just need to give it to Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus' first miracle 
is to save the shame of this poor young couple and takes place not up on a mountain or a public square or the temple, just in someone's home. If Jesus came to reveal the Father, then the Father's concerned about your home, your life, your relationship. And where we see water, Jesus sees wine. You might be holding on to something that feels quite bland, quite tasteless, quite empty, quite unsuitable. You might be feeling quite unqualified for where you are right now. Bring it to Jesus, everything to God in prayer. Everything to God in prayer. Finally, and this I think is why John puts this story in such vivid detail for us. He, he tells us that this is the first of Jesus' miracles and it revealed his glory. Again, not in the temple, not on a mountain. Somebody's new home in Cana of Galilee. A place we can't even find anymore. It's been buried by age. Glory revealed. Why does this reveal his glory? We've already said that the, the water that was in the jars had a special purpose. It was for ceremonial purposes. It was for cleaning. But it had a limited use. After every course of a meal, you had to wash again. It's the trouble, isn't it, with rituals. They only last until you get your hands dirty again, or your feet dirty, and you've got to do it again and again and again. And There's something that John is telling us here about the old way, the old law. <coughs> that it's been replaced. For the rest of this meal, they're not going to be able to wash their hands. You could go to the well, but they couldn't do it in the ceremonial jars. Jesus doesn't seem that concerned about that. What he does is he brings an act of sheer generosity. Jesus is right. He doesn't have to involve himself in this wedding. He doesn't have to include himself in this problem. It's an act of grace. And where there has been law, now there is grace. And where, where the law was limited, again and again and again, and if you forgot between two courses, you were unclean. Grace, more than they could ever ask for. If there were six of these huge jars, that's about 180 gallons of great wine. <laughs> That's why I said, if you get invited to a Jewish wedding, <laughs> not an invitation you want to ignore. But no one small village is going to need 180 gallons of wine for one wedding. What the law is limited to do and what it can do, Jesus' grace is always more than enough. They're going to be drinking that wine for months and years to come. So whatever there lies behind the smile, wherever the secret fear is for you today, can I encourage you, don't try to rule, rule yourself out of it. It's not going to work. It won't satisfy. But in Jesus, there is a grace that is more than enough. For me, I think this whole story hinges on the words of Mary. Whatever he tells you to do, 
do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do that. Even when it seems like Jesus is not going to do what you want him to do, the smartest thing to do is whatever he tells you. I remember a number of years ago, um, just in, in a service like this, just um, feeling that there was somebody there that had a, a back problem that might need praying for, and just off, offered people the opportunity if they wanted to, uh, to receive some prayer for their back. And uh, nothing happened there and then, but after the service, while I was having a coffee, someone said, actually, I've, I struggle with, with back problems and would love you to pray for me. Tim, I think, I think you were there for this. Uh, and so um, we went into my office and we were praying. We were meant to be praying about the guy's back, but I just had this picture of a huge chest that this person was carrying, really tight to themselves. Uh, and that it kind of represented a burden that they were constantly taking around with them. And so I shared this and I said, I will pray for your back, but I can't get away from this thing that there's this chest that you're carrying and it's heavy and it's just need to lay it down, and I don't know if that means anything to you. And the guy started to explain the pressure he feels at work and being the only person that provided for his family and the need to keep everyone up and, and happy and, and just the toll that was taken on him. And so we prayed about that. <coughs> prayed that the Lord would carry that. One of the things we forget most often is that we are yoked to Jesus. Sometimes it's okay to go... We prayed about that. Tears began to flow. And after that, I said, oh, right, I'll have to pray for your back. And he said, actually, my, my back pain has disappeared as well. Do whatever he tells you to do. Even if it looks like he's not going to do what you want him to do, the smartest thing is to do what he tells you to do. Let's pray together for just a moment. When you're out of options, out of time and out of hope, may you know that where you see water, he sees wine. When you're low on resources and high on requests, and it feels like far behind you lies your beauty and your best, may you know that where you see water, he sees wine. When your life is burdened with responsibilities that your ability and your capacity can't contain. When disappointment devastates your dreams until you dare not dream again, may you know that where you see water, he sees wine. And where the light of grace shines through the cracks of your life. When hope surprises you, when generosity astounds you, when grace catches you unawares, may you know that where you see water, he sees wine. And so, Father, I want to pray for anyone today living with a secret fear, carrying a horrible notion that if others knew the shame they would face, the hurt it would cause, 
And I thank you, Lord, that into that moment you generously pour your grace upon grace upon grace. And your grace is not even halfway empty. Thank you, Lord, today that your grace is always enough. And that with you, the very best is yet to come. And if three minutes of angel song leaves us speechless, then the very best really is yet to come. So open our eyes, Jesus, to the water that you're wanting to turn into wine, to the hope that you're wanting to bring, to the grace that you're wanting to lavish. And help us, each and every one of us, I pray, to have an ear for you, to listen deeply to you, and to dare to do whatever you tell us. In Jesus' name.